Uh, I want to start with wishing Mazel Tov to the Mann family for being the youngest looking grandparents there are. <laughs> and um, I, I have my laptop here just to let you know because as Rabbi Mann mentioned, I have online um, classes and that's what I do. And tonight, instead of giving the online class, I said I was going to come here, so forgive me that the mic is here. So I'd like to begin with, uh, first of all, the dedication you just heard, Yaakov Ben Mordechai Ben... Ben? Ben Mordechai and Salika Ben Shoshan. And Salika Ben Shoshan. Um, uh, Kinneret, if I may just tell you, everything works out in God's world perfect. You know that the 14th of Kislev is the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin's wedding. In Kabbalah, Rosh Shimon Bar Yochai refers to the day of passing as Yom Hilula. Hilula is a marriage. And it talks about that the body and the soul is a marriage and so... May, may your family, may your father continue shining down upon you, having nachas from you, and praying for you. Amen. I also um, I have some friends that came from our community, and I'd like to also uh, dedicate for Fuhr Shalema, for Ravital Bat, Batrina, Ravital Batrina, Shavar Fuhr Shalema, and everything should work out in the easiest fashion and well. Menachem Ben Yehudit. Menachem Ben Yehudit. Also, Fuhr Shulamit Batester. Okay. So uh, the topic, the topic that Rabbi Man chose was freedom of choice versus divine providence. Yeah, your eyebrows just went up. So did mine. <laughs> uh, even as a camper, he never made it easy for me. So um, I'm going to share with you that Rabbi, when Rabbi Man told me what I'm going to be speaking about, so my mind went to different type of lectures. There's different type of lectures. There's this real one, very academic. There's the fluffy one, all about feelings. However, both of them would not serve well if we're looking to make a life-lasting change. It can't just be cerebral academics. I've never seen anyone act upon just cerebral knowledge. Self-knowledge and knowledge is important. But there's a reason why your real estate agent tells you that if you don't put in an offer now, you're going to lose it. And that's because they need to get your heart involved. So there's the cerebral and there's the fluffy. And then there's what Chabad does. What Chabad does is called the knowing heart. This topic definitely demands the respect of the knowing, the mind. When you can't just make up things. We gotta have the real Torah view. These are two real fundamental beliefs. And we can't just, just make up things. We have to have academic Torah truth to understand what freedom of choice is, what divine providence is, and how they are mutually inclusive when they seem to be mutually exclusive. But on the other hand, we need to also have the heart. We need to respect people, we need to respect their time, and very few people come out on a Wednesday night to just hear an academic cold lecture. So what we're going to try to do with this, with this topic is do the Chabad approach. Make it a knowing heart experience, respecting the topic and respecting the people present. With that being said, I want to share with you what the secular world talks about in the way I just set it up for you. The secular world has something called IQ and EQ or EI. IQ is, as you know, the intelligence, academic. But then there's the EQ, which is the emotional intelligence. That's why it's also sometimes EI. 
We know today that one of the biggest struggles we have in our academic and our education department is that all too often the school system falls into just the academics. What's the grade? Do they know this stuff? They don't enough focus on the EQ, the emotional intelligence. What we do know today, thanks to statistics and studies, the success of a person depends more on the development and evolution of their emotional intelligence than their academic intelligence. So the language of the EQ is a very different than the IQ. And therefore, in Hasidus, we have so many conversations and discussions. How do you get from the brain to the heart? The brain is wide, the heart is wide, the neck is very narrow. You get here to here. We're going to try to do that today with this topic. So first, I want to just share with you, what is the problem? Let's, let's lay out the question here. Why is there such a paradox between the freedom of choice and the divine providence? So what I want to share with you is that freedom of choice and divine providence are fundamental beliefs in Judaism. Now, the fact that they're fundamental beliefs means that they have to be absolute. What that means is that freedom of choice has to be real. It can't be a virtual reality. It can't be that, well, it's, it's a showmanship. It's really, uh, you know, we're going to have over here effects, you know. Uh, we, we can't say that, that really you should know you don't have any freedom of choice. God is just making it look like you should have freedom of choice, that you should find meaning in life. If you do that, you've just destroyed the entire truth of Torah, mitzvot, and purpose to life. If freedom of choice is really just a trick, it's just like when a parent makes a child believe that they're making choices, but they're really not making choices. The parent makes all the choices for the child. If that's what freedom of choice is, then life is useless and meaningless. Torah and mitzvot has no value. What makes Torah and mitzvot real is the fact that we have the freedom to choose what we want to do and what we don't want to do. On the other hand, divine providence is an absolute truth. I want to share with you why we have to say that. Divine providence means that in my life, nothing, absolutely nothing happens that wasn't under the divine providence of God. Now, I ask of you, if that isn't true, if your freedom of choice can harm me and there is no divine providence, why would you waste your time praying to a God who isn't in control? If God is going to say, listen, I, I gave them freedom of choice, and if that guy wants to kill you or, or, or harm you, then I can't stop that. Because were I to stop him, that would mean that there's no real freedom of choice. I don't allow people to really do and cause what they really choose to do and cause. So why would I waste my time praying to God? If I could be an innocent bystander in the wrong place at the wrong time when some drunken driver was stupid enough to get into his car and drive when they were drunk and that caused an accident, 
And God was not going to get involved because God gave us the foundation that the person can choose to drink, the person can choose to drive, and thus really choose to cause the loss of a life. If that's true, then I'm wasting my time praying to God. You ever go into the store and you waste your time with three salesmen until you finally get frustrated and say, can I speak to the person who's in charge here? That's what I would want to do with my prayers. So Hashem, you're not, you're not in charge. Then can I speak to who's in charge? So thus we have to say that divine providence is true. I want to take it to the extreme. I want to say that from Adam and Eve, there has never been a person whose life was taken before it was complete. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, I do want to say that most often the definition of complete is something that only God understands, not us. We don't understand. It looks like the person was so young and had so much ahead of them. What do you mean their life was complete? But what I do want to say is no one can take another human life. Therefore, I can pray to God to protect me from the evil choices of others. But how does that make sense? If the evil choices of others are real and they can act upon those real choices. Thus, I put before you what Rabbi Man was thinking when he asked me to talk about this. The paradox of the impossibility to say that I have absolute freedom of choice to do what I want to who I want and the divine providence that only God alone is the one that rules and decides what happens to any creature in the universe. How can those two coexist? Now, I want to just talk to you about two details. This topic has been discussed by the greatest minds, such as Maimonides. And then there was the one who argued with Maimonides, famous person called the Ravid. I stood at a Fabrengen when the Rebbe dealt with this issue. And I heard the Rebbe's explanation to it. So you're talking about the greatest minds have already dealt with this. However, I want to deal with just one, one detail. And I want to talk about the two halves of this detail. Number one, if something is preordained, what freedom of choice do I have? For example, you remember that God told Abraham that Jacob, the, the generation, the offspring, is going to be slaves in Egypt. Did Jacob have any freedom of choice in that? Was, was Jacob able to tell God, no, thank you. I, I don't want to be a slave. I'm doing just fine right here. The other question is, if someone else has freedom of choice to harm another person, where is divine providence and God's protection over the victim? The example I want to use here is Jacob's son. Joseph was sold by his brothers in slavery. So they, those brothers had free choice to decide what they were going to do to Joseph. Did Joseph have any power over that? He was able, Joseph was able to say to God, where are you? I mean, you're just letting this happen? Now, these two questions, I want to just point out, for me, 
is not academic questions to understand the Jewish belief. These questions reach down to the core of my relationship with God and my understanding of life. I need to know if I'm just a pawn on God's chessboard and he's just playing with me, making me think that I'm making the move when really he's making all the moves. I need to know if my relationship with God is true and real. If you ever look into a great book called Duties of the Heart, over there, there's different gateways. One of the gateways is the gateway of trust. And he puts down some very concrete prerequisites that God needs to have in order for me to trust him. And one of them is that God is in complete control of every detail that happened in my life. If Joseph was a victim of his brother's resentment, then Joseph was wasting his time to have a relationship with God because God has given up the power to be there when you need him most. So those two questions that we're going to talk about, can I, can I have the trust in God that when someone else uses the freedom of choice to hurt me, God will protect me? On the one hand. On the other hand, when I make a choice, is it real? Is it real or am I just wasting my time? Those are the two sides of this question. Now, I'm going to use specifically the two examples that I brought here. The story with Jacob, that God already made a covenant with Abraham that you're going, that you're, Jacob's going to be going into exile and they're going to be there for four generations. And then I'm going to talk about the specific uh, the case of Joseph and his brothers. So let's talk about Jacob for a moment. I want to share with you a interesting teaching that comes from the Talmud Tractic Shabbat, page 89, side B. And I'm going to read it to you. Rabbi Chia bar Abba, Rabbi Chia the son of Abba said that Rabbi Yochanan said, our father Jacob should have gone down to Egypt in iron chains. His merit caused him to descend without suffering, as it is written, and he quotes a verse from Hosea. What do we just say here? We just said that Jacob was supposed to go down as a slave. Let's count the four generations. The four generations that God said were going to be slaves in Egypt was Jacob. I'm going to go through the dynasty of Moses. Jacob, Levi, Kahat, Amram, the fifth generation, Moses, leaves Egypt. Jacob is one of the four slave generations. Thus, we understand that the Talmud is saying here that Jacob should have gone down like a slave, not like royalty. However, because of his merits, his chuyot, therefore he merited to go down in royalty and not in shackles. What does this piece of Talmud tell you about freedom of choice and divine providence? It tells you something very interesting. It tells you that we don't have really freedom of choice over the what, but over the how. You following me? God decided what is going to happen. Jacob is going down to Egypt. However, freedom of choice, Jacob's choices that he made in his life, which built up his merits, 
had him go not as a slave, which he should have gone as, but to go as royalty. Thus, I'm separating for you now the what and the how. And I'm going to share with you a more recent story than Jacob of 3,400 years ago. This story was with a man called Rabbi Gerari, who was a very wealthy chassid of the 5th Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber. Now, one time in one of the Yechidut, a private audience that Rabbi Gerari had with his Rebbe, his Rebbe told him, out of nowhere in the conversation, you know, I heard that they're building train tracks down to Siberia. I think you should get involved with the business. Of course, as every good chassid, Rabbi Gerari had all the intentions to act upon his Rebbe's advice. However, the facts are that Rabbi Gerari dealt with precious gems. And he never got around to getting involved in the business of building train tracks. Decades later, when Stalin's regime started hunting down everyone and anyone that had any affiliation with religion, rabbis, teachers, and those who finance religious institutions, Rabbi Gerari was sentenced and found himself in a slave camp in Siberia. He was there with some other Hasidim that did the horrible acts of teaching children Torah, building mikvaot, making sure that there's kosher meat for the community. And what happens is he turns around to his friend in a moment of recognition. And he said, oh my God, the Rebbe saw that my soul had sparks to elevate in Siberia. And he offered me to do my godly mission in class. I didn't listen. And now I'm here as a slave. My friends, we make a blessing every single morning. God prepares the footsteps of mankind. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, we explain that there are godly sparks that is being waiting to be elevated by specific souls. Your soul has its godly spark. And because of that, God brings you to where your sparks are waiting for you. You look at the Jewish people, yeah, I mean, in this room, I, I probably am guessing that what? There's at least five nationalities? And how'd you all end up here? Rabbi Mam from Detroit, Rebetzin Mam from Crown Heights, and they're here in Venetian Islands. It's because precisely there are certain sparks that wait only for you in Venetian Islands. And thus, God said, I have to bring the soul to their sparks. So where you're going to be, where you have to be, you're going to be. The what is predestined. The how. How are you going to end up here? Are you going to be coming in class? Are you becoming like a mensch? Or are you going to be coming like an underdog, running from? That will depend upon your choices in your life. Thus, from this teaching, we have a clear understanding on how Hashkacha Pratit and Bechira Chavshit, divine providence and freedom of choice, can work together. The divine providence is the how. I'm sorry, the divine providence is the what. The freedom of choice is the how.
Let's talk about the next story. Joseph and his brothers. I want to read to you what Joseph tells his brothers, because I think that one of the biggest foundations in the Torah for us to understand the coexistence and the mutual inclusivity between freedom of choice and divine providence is exactly in the conversation Joseph has with his brothers. So Joseph finally meets his brothers. He's at a point where he finally is ready to reveal himself to his brothers. And he reveals himself to his brothers. And in that moment, his brothers are thrown into the depths of pain and shame. And Joseph notices that. Let me read to you directly from the Torah. But, do not do, but now do not be sad and let it not trouble you that you sold me here for it was to preserve life that God sent me before you. For already two years of famine have passed in the midst of the land and for another five years, you do remember the story with the seven cows, the sign that there was going to be a famine for there's going to be good years and then bad years. There will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to make for you a remnant in the land and to preserve it for you for a great deliverance. If there is ever a Torah story that will teach us how to deal with resentment, real, justified resentment, if there's anyone that would have absolute justified resentment, it would be Joseph to his brothers. 17 years old, he's separated from his father, goes through being a slave, goes through being thrown in prison. And even then, when he becomes viceroy, as a good yeshiva boy, I don't think that was his chosen profession. And thus, Joseph should be full of resentment against his brothers. And yet, what does he tell them? No resentment. How? I want you to pay careful attention, if I may, to what Joseph just did. Joseph separated what the perpetrator does and what happens to the victim. If you listen to the verse, Joseph creates a paradox. Now don't feel bad about what you did because God has sent me here. Make up your mind. Why am I here? Because you did or because God did? But if you look carefully what Joseph did, he's saying that you did what you did, but what happened to me has nothing what to do with you. What happened to me has to do with God. That power to separate what the sinner does from what the victim is experiencing is the foundation of what we're going to talk about right now. I want to take it, I've learned that the best way to make things clear is to take it to their extreme. A lot of times when I give this class, I'm always asked about this topic. And what if someone killed someone? Let's go there. A murders B. I want to share with you that according to Jewish law, A does not get punished because of, the, of B, 
Rather, A gets punished for the act of murder. Again, I'm doing what Joseph did. I'm separating the act of the perpetrator from the, what happened, the experience of the victim. I'm going to quote to you a piece of Talmud that is unbelievable. When I was doing research this last week, I came across this piece of Talmud. It's really unbelievable. Rashi says the words, and a lot of people knew that, know that. Even in modern-day Hebrew, we use that very often. You know what I help me? Someone else will help me. God has many ways to help me. I don't want to talk about the help. I want to talk about the opposite. Do you know where this saying comes from? It's a Rashi. But where did Rashi take this from? I want to read to you the Talmud where Rashi takes it from. When Trajan, he was a Roman emperor, sought to kill the important leaders, Lulianus and his brother Papas, he said to them, he was taunting these Jewish leaders, if you are from the nation of Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, let your God come and save you from my hand, just as he saved Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. Famous story in the Book of Prophets, Hanan, Mishal, and Azariah, Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them, and God performs a miracle, and they're saved. So he's taunting them. Okay, you're from those people. You're from his nation. Let's see if God's going to save you from me. Listen to the answer. They answered him as follows. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were full-fledged tzaddikim, righteous people, and they were worthy that a miracle should be performed for them. And Nebuchadnezzar was a legitimate king who rose to power through his merit, and therefore it was fitting that a miracle be performed through him. He was a legitimate king, even though he was a bad person, but he was a legitimate king, so he deserved to have God do a miracle through him, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were truly righteous people. They deserved that God should do a miracle for them. Then look what they go on to say. But this wicked man, he, they were talking to Trajan, is a commoner, not a real king, and is not fitting that a miracle be performed through him. All of this is just background story. Now let's hear what I really want you to hear. They then continued and said, and we are not wholly righteous and have been condemned to destruction by the omnipresent, by God, for our sins. Listen to these words. And if you do not kill us, the omnipresent has many other executioners. And if men do not kill us, the omnipresent has many bears and lions in this world that can kill us. Instead, the Holy One, blessed be He, placed us into your hands only that, so that he will revenge our blood in the future. What did you just hear here? What did these two righteous people tell Trajan that really gives us to understand what's going on here? You should know that our being killed is not your choice. We're being killed because of what we've done. And God has found us guilty and deserving of death. What you're doing is choosing to do murder. However, our dying is not in your power. 
It is not in the power of any human being to harm any other human being or any creature if it was not preordained by God. Thus, what we're finding here is something amazing. We're finding the power to be able to separate the action of the perpetrator, which is absolute freedom of choice. They're saying, we're going to die because God found it. And if you wouldn't do it, someone else would do it. And if someone else wouldn't do it, something else would do it. What you're doing is making your choices. And God will deal with you for your choices. Joseph, I want to sum it up for you this way. Joseph sees God as the master chef who prepares an individual meal for every individual person. Everyone and everything else is just waiters. Now, I always feel sorry for the waiter. Ever seen a nasty person? You call this soup? You're not gonna get no tip, really? Did she prepare the soup? Really? Why don't you talk to the person who is in charge? First of all, the owner or the chef. What are you screaming at this poor college girl who, as it is, is going through life being of service to you, trying to give you the best experience you can have in your restaurant? What are you doing? You're screaming at her for something that you know good and well isn't her doing. That's what Joseph did. Joseph told his brothers, you're waiters. You're waiters. I have no issue with you. I've questioned myself for the last 21 years. Not why my brothers did this to me. I've questioned myself why God did this to me. That is the Jewish approach. That is how we deal with resentment and anger. By realizing that when we're angry at somebody or something, then we're misdirecting our anger. You know why we do this? Because we'd rather not face who really is in charge. Forgive me for a moment going off script. You know how many times I have people talking to me about there's this woman who's flirting with her husband and I hate her and I did. I said, her? She never made a bond with you. You're right, she's wrong. But don't you have the guts to deal with the one you should be dealing with? You need to have a conversation with your husband. Chasing down that wife, that woman, where she works, I mean, fine. But that isn't your issue. Me getting mad at that person for embarrassing me is me not having the guts to look in the eyes of God and say, God, why? Why? This has nothing to do with him. Which takes me to another conversation. I want to share with you something very, very interesting. I want to share with you the wording of the Alter Rebbe, Rav Shneir Zamar of Liadi, and he, in his book, Shulchan Aruch, The Code of Jewish Law, says very unique wording as to why and how people have to do Teshuvah. 
when you apologize to someone, when you apologize to God, what is the wording he says? We have to apologize and do teshuvah al reya bichirato. What do those words mean? I have to do a tshuva and apologize for the evilness of my choice. That's interesting. Why don't I have to apologize for the spilled milk? Why don't I have to apologize that I destroyed this girl's shidduch by badmouthing her? Why don't I have to do apologize that this man lost his job because of me? No, none of that. What you need to apologize for is for the evil choice that you made. Not for the outcome of the choice, but for the evil choice. And I want to share with you what that means. God has given us the freedom of choice to choose what we do and what we don't want to be his emissary for. I have the right to tell God, listen, I understand that you want to punish that guy. I get it but I don't want to be involved. When you're ready to reward someone, I'm at your service. But when you want to hurt someone, and you have your, God is just, God is compassion, it's all for the good, all sweet and beautiful, I don't want to be part of it. We have the freedom of choice to tell God when to use us and when not to use us. Thus, my freedom of choice has nothing what to do with what happens to that person. And if it isn't preordained from God that that person should be hurt, I can try until I'm blue in the face, that person will not be hurt. And if it was preordained for that person to be hurt, minus teshuva, if he does teshuva, then that's a different story. But if he doesn't, or she doesn't teshuva, I don't do it, someone else will do it, or something else will do it. I want to go off script again. You know how many times I feel people, I see people, they get stuck in a mistake that they made. And do you know why they get stuck in a mistake that they made? Because they're trying to fix what wasn't their action. You know, in the life of addiction recovery, there's a very interesting thing called living amends. Living amends means I can't take back what I did, but I can spend the rest of my life being a mensch so that it never happens again. That, to me, is true teshuva. For me to take responsibility for the death of a human being is me playing God. For me taking responsibility for choosing to commit murder, that's real. Thus, you have the two sides of the coin. My freedom of choice is only exists in my world of what I choose to do and what I choose not to do. My freedom of choice has nothing to do with what will happen to anyone else. 
And thus our sages say, And thus I should never, don't get me wrong. What did it say? Forgive, but don't forget. I'm, I'm not telling you to continue a relationship with someone that's continuously choosing to harm you. You know, in Hasidus, we talk about the most loftiest concepts, and then we have a beautiful saying that goes like this, Meshige, Meshige, of a Seichel Daf Crazy, crazy, but be smart. It's wonderful to talk about this, but we also have to not be stupid. We don't have to put ourselves in harm's way because if God didn't want to harm you, I wouldn't be harmed. So I'm not telling you to continue a relation with a harmful person, be it even a parent. You'll deal with your rabbi, you'll deal with your, with your uh, therapist. The Talmud tells us a very clear case of Rabbi Yossi who could not deal with his mother no more. She was not mentally well. And he actually ran away from her. But before he ran away from her, he set up and paid someone to take care of her. I have to honor my parent, but I also need to protect myself. There's always a Yiddish answer. So I'm not saying stay in relationships that are hurtful. But what I am saying is, don't waste your time with resentment against the person who did it. Because what he did has nothing what to do with what you experienced. I'm going to go off script again. I actually heard the Rebbe say this. It was by a Fabrengen, and the Rebbe asked a simple question. If we just said that what happens to you has nothing what to do with what I'm doing, then why do I have to apologize to you? I should only apologize to God. The laws of Yom Kippur says that if I harm someone, I cannot ask God for forgiveness before I ask that person for forgiveness. And the Rebbe asked why. Why do I have to ask that person for forgiveness? That person was not harmed by me. The Rebbe answered, it's unbelievable, the Rebbe's paradigm. The Rebbe said that a lot of times people remain in pain because the person didn't take ownership of what they did. If a person would take ownership of what they did and apologize to me, it'd be easier for me to move on. The Rebbe said that the reason you should apologize is not for what happened in the past, but choose to minimize the pain that he's going through today. Your apology will help that person feel better now. Choosing not to apologize is not just refusing to deal with the past. But in truth, it's dealing with the presence. Because that person is hurting and hurting and hurting. And one phone call, one good Starbucks coffee with a true man-to-man or woman-to-woman or man-to-woman, woman-to-man conversation would make that person feel better. Thus, I need to make the right choice about the present. Thus, we're having a clear, more complete understanding of what the Jewish belief of freedom of choice is and what the Jewish belief of divine providence is. And we do that by separating what the perpetrator does and what happens to the victim. We understand, 
That person, this person, I need to know. I will get hurt if I'm meant to get hurt unless I do teshuvah. It has nothing what to do with that person. And sometimes, I want to just throw this out there. Sometimes getting hurt has nothing what to do with sins. It has to do with what a soul has to go through to reach its destiny. For whatever it may be. Everyone thinks that, oh, that happens to that person. That person must be such a sinner. No. No, we don't know. We don't know. Many, many righteous people have been very, very hurt. And in Kabbalah, it talks about it. It talks about how that works with the evil and the righteous people. But what I want to share with you is, what's meant to happen to me has nothing what to do with your choices. Thus, very often... And I, I, I'm sure you experience this in your relationships with a person. There are times I feel sorry for people that hurt me. I feel sorry for them, not because I'm almighty and high. Oh, I feel so sorry that they did No. I see the shame. I see the powerlessness. I see the helplessness. I see how they feel about what they did. Thus, I can have compassion rather than resentment. But what do you mean? I don't like getting hurt. <laughs> I'm going to go off script again. Oh, I heard the Rebbe say bye for bringing. People ask me how I deal with people talking about me. And the Rebbe said like this. Honestly, I can't tell you I like it. But being through divine providence, the oldest son of a religious rabbi in Russia, I had to deal with this all the time. And I learned from my father, regardless of what people say about me, I need to do what I need to do. We're wasting so much time, my friends, with the waiter. We're not busy doing what we have to do to make up with the chef. And then we wonder why the dish doesn't taste good again. Why is this another bitter dish? Why is this another cold dish? I told that waitress, what, is she stupid or something? Hasn't she learned her lesson yet? We waste our time and our resentments against humans rather than realizing that everything that happens to us is a communication between God and I and only I. It's a private conversation. And I have to have back that private conversation between I and God. That other person, they're going to have to face God and say, listen, God, I don't like this no more. I know you have your reasons for hurting people. I don't want to be that waiter no more. I want to be here for you, God, when you want to do goodness and kindness and compassion to your creatures. Use me then. The separation between the two. I want to go ahead and just share with you one more detail. And then I want to take it to the next level. Let's talk about Joseph. What did Joseph tell his brothers? God sent me here because there's going to be seven years of famine. And the entire Jewish people, Jacob and his family and his grandchildren, will all be killed if someone in Egypt isn't there to provide for them. 
Thus God sent me here for a reason, not you. One second. Jacob went down in royalty. Joseph went down as a slave. Why did Joseph go down as a slave? Because his brothers sold him. One second, Joseph could have said, hey, one second, you know, if not for you guys, I could have come here on first class. Who are you to decide that I need to come here as a slave? What is Joseph's logic helping at all? Joseph's logic only answers why he is in Egypt. But how he got to Egypt with all that suffering has nothing what to do with feeding the Jewish people. If he would have come on a first class El Al to Egypt, he would have been able to do his job too. Thus, I want to share with you, the Torah gives us the answer. The Torah tells us in the beginning, before the brothers sold him, that Joseph was a gossiper who brought all that he was a tattletale, who brought all the bad news about his brothers to his father, specifically the brothers from Leah, not the ones from Bilazilpa. Rashi says the word, any bad news he heard about Leah's sons, he told it to Jacob. Why is the Torah telling us this? I'll tell you why the Torah is telling us this. The Torah is telling us this to let us know that it wasn't just that it was meant for him to go to Egypt, but by his own actions, he earned to go as a slave. Thus, it's picture perfect. Joseph has to be in Egypt. Joseph has to go as a slave because of poor choices that he made in his life. And the brothers were the Schmendricks that decided to be the waiters. And therefore, the brothers are going to have to do Teshuvah, not for Joseph being a slave, but for selling their brother. By the way, again going off script, According to some commentaries, that's why Joseph was playing games with his brothers. He was telling them, I want to see Benjamin. And then he says, Benjamin's going to be a slave because Benjamin stole. Right? He, he put the goblet into Benjamin's sack. And the commentaries are saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Your brothers? No, he wasn't. He was creating for them the same scenario. Will you betray your brother? Or will you be there for your brother? Because that's the only teshuvah that the brothers had to do. The brothers didn't have to do teshuvah for the 21 years that Jacob was separated. That's between Joseph and God. There's only one teshuvah they need to do. The bad choice of betraying a brother. Let give you the opportunity to make that choice again to see you rise above it. So the teshuvah for the brothers has nothing what to do with what Joseph went through, but with their action they chose to do. Thus, let's straighten it out. So before we go to the next level, just quick recap. We now understand how freedom of choice and divine providence coexist. Freedom of choice is me choosing my actions, which has nothing what to do with what happens to the other. Divine providence has nothing what to do with what I choose to do. It has to do with what happens to the other. Two different situations. Thus we understand how divine providence and freedom of choice coexist in Judaism. But I want to take it to the next level.
Because if I were to leave you with what I just said, that freedom of choice is only about the how and divine providence is about the what, I wouldn't be fully honest with you. I'm going to enter a zone which I do not have enough understanding of. So I don't want you to think that, oh, yeah, he gets it. I don't get it. But I'm going to share with you something very interesting. There are enough teachings in Hasidus, specifically of our Rebbe of saintly memory, who says that the freedom of choice is not only over the how, but also over the what. For to understand that, which I don't, but I can just tell you what's written about it and the logic behind it. The normal relationship between a Jew and God, the natural relationship has to do with the faculties of our soul. What I give God is my mind. I give God my thought, speech, and action. I give God my feelings. Those are all external faculties of my soul. How many of you have heard of these words? Pintalayid. Guys familiar with that word? The Pintalayid in Spanish, chispa de judio. What is that piece? Dr. Rebbe writes in Tanya that the essence of the soul is truly a piece of the essence of God. <clears throat> so much so that in some places the holy books say that the essence of a Jewish soul is a piece of creator that became a creation. Now I want to share with you what that means. When you introduce your pintilayid, when through self-sacrifice you introduce your essence, you're going illogical. You're going transrational. You're fighting against your comfort zone of your emotions. I'm being driven by the essence of my being. That creates a total different power of freedom of choice. Why? A little Kabbalistic, and then we'll get very practical. What happens to me, what happens to you, what happens to the universe is preordained in the will of God. The will of God has it preordained that I will be here on Wednesday night, Yudalit Kislev, commemorating the yard site of, of Kinneret's father with giving a class on this topic. It could have not been any other way. Because in the will of God, everything is defined to the minutest detail. But now I want to introduce you to the master of the will. The essence of God does not have anything that has to be this way and no other way. Thus, when we pray, what are the most famous words of prayer, my friends? You remember? Yehiratzon. What does Yehiratzon mean? May it be your will. What do you mean, may it be your will? God already has a will. God willed it for this person to be sick. And now we're saying Yehiratzon. Because I'm not stuck with the book. I've got a relationship with the author. I'm not stuck with the will of God. Because I have a relationship with the master of the will of God. The master of the will of God can do what he wants and when he wants. 
to quote what I heard by the Rebbe's Fabrengans over and over when he spoke about God. Who's going to tell him what he has to do? Thus, if I can bring into the picture not the will of God, but the essence of God, then not only can my freedom of choice affect the how, but also the what. But how do I bring the essence of God into the picture? The natural flow is that the will of God deals with the universe. The answer is that God says, I am your shadow, which means that God responds to us. If I can bring the essence of my being into the picture, if I'm praying not just logically, but I'm praying from the depth of the core of my being, I have to make a choice now that is so difficult for me to make. Incredibly in love with this one woman who's not Jewish. I've given away everything for God. Can I give away this one? My love. That's not normal. If I, all my life I worked for this business deal, and my muscle, the person's willing to meet with me Friday night. You gotta be kidding God. Just one, one Friday night. I'll give Rabbi Man so much charity from this business deal, don't you worry about it God. Logic screams, are you kidding? You're gonna walk away from this? Self-sacrifice says, yes. Why would you walk away from it? Because it doesn't follow in peace with the essence core of who I am. The Pintelayid is struggling with it. Thus, I'm going to do self-sacrifice. Many people think self-sacrifice means you die for God. Let me tell you something much more difficult than dying for God. It's called living for God. <laughs> and thus, if I can have self-sacrifice in living for God, I bring in my essence, God brings in his essence. And once the author is here, I can get him to rewrite a chapter. Once the master of the will is here, I can say, you hear that song, I know what you wanted. Can you change this for me? Can you want it differently now? I, I'm telling you, I do not understand this fully, completely, but the logic behind it is there. And then, in closing, you know, here's the, here's the, the real problem. Tomorrow, this question is going to hit you, and you, are you going to remember everything that I spent 51 years of my life learning? There's a lot of information here. So here's a trick that I learned. Wrap it up in one sentence. And one sentence you can remember. So people, I want to give you one sentence which doesn't carry all the academic intelligentsia, but it'll help you in life when you're struggling on the moment. You ready for it? Foresight, freedom of choice, Hindsight, divine providence. Remember that one line, and you'll always be able to make it through the quandary. Let's say it again. Foresight, freedom of choice. I should never lie to myself, well, I'm going to do this. And if God doesn't want it to happen, no. Foresight, 
freedom of choice. Hindsight, divine providence. If it happened, it was meant to happen. And now I want to give a little cliffhanger. Because if I leave you with a cliffhanger, maybe Rabbi Man has to bring me back. <laughs> there is an unbelievable teaching. The Rebbe talks about it on a huge water. Real, real beautiful for bringing. The verse says, How awesome is your plotting against mankind. Where does that verse come from? It comes from Psalm 66, verse 5. What does that mean, how awesome is your plot against mankind? Really, God's plotting against mankind? The Talmud says that God plotted and preordained that Adam and Eve would eat from the tree of knowledge. And our sages point a finger at God and say, you left Adam and Eve no choice. You were going to have it your way that they would eat from the tree of knowledge. Here's the cliffhanger. There isn't a single sin that you did that was meant for us to do. I want to say that again. There is not a single sin that you or I have ever committed that was predicted that we should commit. Would you like to understand that? Have Rabbi Mom bring me back. <laughs> <laughs>